This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Welcome everybody to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. You're listening to episode 153. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me or shoot me an email at rcraft at snnwire.com. And when you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, please rate and review Planet Microcap on iTunes. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the Microcap message. I'd like to wish all of you a very happy and safe holiday season. This has been quite a year, and I know I'll be taking some time to think about everything I'm thankful and grateful for. And I can clue you in on one of those. It's you. I'm thankful to each and every one of you that take the time to listen to Planet Microcap. I do my best to put out the best, highest quality content I can, and I hope that you can continue to find value in every episode that that I put out there. So again, thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, now, I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't plug the uh, SNN Network Canada virtual event happening on January 6th and 7th, 2021. It's coming. And don't worry, I'll keep this one short and sweet. We are two weeks away. So be sure to register and set your agenda. Go to canada.snn.network and click register. It's an insanely awesome lineup, speakers, presenting companies, sponsors, just thankful to everybody who's involved. And uh, you're you're really going to get a lot of value out of this event. So definitely go canadasnn.network, click register. This week from the SNN Podcast Network, we are concluding uh, Paul Andriola's media blitz <laughs> with, with him being a guest on this week's episode of Avoiding the Crowd with Maj Swaydan. Uh, Paul and Maj have known each other for a long time. Fellow microcap warriors on the battlefield looking for the best possible undiscovered investments out there. If you love microcap stocks, you will love this episode. Two legends being legendary. Check out this episode on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or Podbean, or on the geoinvesting.com website, which is geoinvesting.com, or at avoidingthecrowd.podbean.com. Now, for this episode of the Planet Microcap podcast, I spoke with Billy Duberstein. He is a portfolio manager at Stone Oak Capital, LLC. We were introduced by Matthew Peterson. Thank you, Matt. Big shout out. And uh, we're starting a new group called Friends of Matt, or uh, FOM. Uh, but as it states on Billy's website, the firm's, and I quote here, opportunity fund is a, a concentrated value-based hedge fund that aims for aggressive capital appreciation and superior long-term returns, end quote. The focus for this interview is to learn more about Billy's uh, strategy for finding opportunities that fit his fund's criteria, in particular, how he finds special companies and special situations. Thank you again for tuning into episode 153 of the Planet Microcap podcast, and please enjoy my conversation with Billy Duberstein.
Welcome back, everybody, to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and joining me right now is Billy Duberstein. He is the founder and portfolio manager at Stone Oak Capital. Billy, thank you for joining me today. How are you doing, man? Thank you. Uh, thank you for having me, uh, Robert. It's uh, great to be here. Great to have you on. And as a, an FOM, a, a friend of Matt Peterson, we got to yeah. give a shout out to Matt. So uh, thank you, Matt, for introducing us and uh, allowing us to uh, be here today. Yeah, Matt's a great guy. We, uh, we trade a lot of ideas. And uh, uh, thank you, Matt, for uh, introducing me to uh, Robert here. All right. There you <laughs> I'm yeah, wherever you are. Well, uh, as a fellow uh, Los Angelino here, you know, somewhere in between the Hollywood and West Hollywood area, you know, normally we would do this in person, but hey, you know, we're going to do, we're going to have our virtual chat here, do some virtual high fives and uh, get after it. So, you know, All Billy, right. uh, how I like to start every interview, I, I'd really love to start with your background. You know, where would you say that your passion for investing began? Yeah, thanks. That's a that's a good question. It's um, it's kind of a long evolution that I guess peaked in my twenties. Um, I grew up in Westchester County, outside New York City, so I guess uh, finance capital of the world. Um, I come from a family where wait, Westchester County or New York City? Westchester County. Yeah, there you go. In between, in between the city and Greenwich, Connecticut. So yeah, of course. Uh, I grew up in Purchase, New York, um, and uh, growing up, I uh, came from a family that made a lot of its income from uh, from investments. My dad was an investor; he was an entrepreneur, which I didn't know was kind of a strange uh, profession or abnormal until much later in life. I just thought it was uh, normal. So he would, you know, he would always talk about some business he was in, some investment that it was doing well or had gone sideways. So kind of through osmosis and just the region I grew up in, uh, investing was kind of in the blood. Um, I had a healthy competitive streak growing up. I played sports. But um, really when I got into high school and through college, I, uh, I had an artsy streak and uh, went to uh, University of Virginia. I actually majored in music. And uh, after graduating... Um, and yeah, I took economics, accounting, all that. So I, I was always very intellectually curious and kind of got into every different subject in school, which as it turns out is a pretty good background for being an investor. Um, you need sort of that interdisciplinary mindset. Um, I actually had aspirations to be a screenwriter and director coming out of, uh, out of college, which is why I moved out to LA first. Um, nice. I actually wrote some screenplays that never saw the light of day. And uh, I directed a couple of short films that are in the dustbin of history, probably, fortunately. Um, oh, oh, we got to dig some. Give us some, what were the <laughs> titles of a couple? You know, like those those first short films, like some of the titles, you're just like, look back and you're like, oh my gosh. Like, <laughs> yeah, uh, my second one was much better than my first one. Yeah. But uh, that one was called Super Glue. They actually okay. got to a couple of film festivals. Nice. Um, yeah. Uh, it was not totally terrible. And it was kind of funny. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, uh, I kind of always had a stock, a few stocks I owned growing up and kind of played with them. And once I got into my 20s, um, I don't know, it became very, in it was around the time of the real estate bubble and crash. 
2008. And I just became, you know, as a writer, I would fancy myself somewhat of a serious person. And, you know, there's a lot of uh, writers out here who pretend to be faux experts on political and economic matters. So, um, uh, first of all, as a young adult, you became, you know, you start managing your money, you become interested in money. And then um, just intellectually, I became very curious in the economy and, you know, the asset bubble we were in and when it, you know, and then it burst, the Great Recession um, leading up to that. And I don't, I, I had still been trading stocks in an amateur way, but somewhere along the line, my interest just got totally sparked and I was, became somewhat obsessive. I, I realized that one day I would have to manage, you know, family assets and I decided to become as good of an investor as I could. And so, uh, I think the first investing book out of college, it was Robert Hagstrom's the investing the last liberal art. And you know, he's a Buffett scholar. Nice. So again, back to the liberal arts, um, I guess you could say I come in investing from a little bit of a different angle than a lot of people who come from the straight accounting economics two years of investment banking and then to uh, then to the buy side. So I come from sort of a completely different kind of roundabout way, which I think sort of informs how I approach um, investments today. But uh, after the Hagstrom book, I decided to read all of Warren Buffett's shareholder letters going back to the seventies, which itself is like a book. They're each about 20 pages and it's about what, 40 something years. Um, and they're very funny and entertaining to read. And that's probably the best investing education you can get. And uh, I think by the time I got to the end of that, I was totally hooked. Um, then you go on to read his, you know, Ben Graham, Phil Fisher, Peter Lynch. And uh, shortly after I decided, okay, I really enjoy getting up and you know, researching companies and finding great investments. And it really stokes my competitive fire. And I, I have much more of an analytical mind, I would say, than uh, <laughs> than, an, um, than the mindset you might have to have to uh, um, write drama <laughs> and uh, unburden your soul every day. And I really love the uh, the meritocracy of investing. You know, if, if you're right, eventually you're going to be. You know, you can. Um, kind of impart your worldview via how you, what companies you invest in and how you invest. And if you're right, eventually with enough time, you'll be right. Um, right. And that really appealed to me. So shortly I mean, after, go ahead. I was going to say, Billy, no. So what it sounded like really was, you know, you, you want, you, you had the idea for the big short and then Michael Lewis beat you to it. So you're like, all right, screw it. I'm just going to be the best investor I can be. You know, let's just, let's just go. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's what I think. I mean, I mean, you know, if there's some sort of nonfiction crazy story that Hollywood's going to make between him and Aaron Sorkin, you know, all, all the jobs are taken. I mean, they, they have, so, they have full market share. I mean, uh, how, how did, how did they own this it's, niche? It's a duopoly and, uh, <laughs> you know, young, scrappy, innovative screenwriters can't, can't break in anymore. Uh, you know what? Hey, there's a, there's a couple good microcap stories out there that I'm sure yeah. you, you can you know you could carve. That's how you carve in the Billy Duberstein screenplay in there. Totally. Yeah. Um, so shortly after that, I realized I probably needed some formal training if anyone was going to uh, take me seriously. And uh, I went to business school 
Uh, I went to N went, flew back to the East Coast, went to NYU. Um, I had uh, um, uh, the privilege of uh, you know studying under a lot of great professors there. The most famous one is obviously Oswat Damodaran. He's the valuation guru there. I took uh, both his classes and uh, and got A's because I was studying in his class for you know more than others. Um, and uh, you know. He, that really instilled a lot of the valuation quantitative discipline that I overlay on top of, I guess, my qualitative bent or, you know, how I naturally come at things from a qualitative point of view, but that instilled really the quantitative discipline to, uh, that I try to bring. And then I had a bunch of other great professors. Um, you know, I, I was the head of the student investing uh, club that invest part of the endowment. Um, I studied under Gary Clark, who is founding partner of Jana Partners. It was his first class he ever taught. Uh, he did special situations investing and James Rosenwald, who did international value investing. Um, and I, I really enjoyed the, uh, the strategy, the strategy curriculum that's meant for consultants, because that's how you get at how do you establish a competitive advantage as a company or a secret sauce and, uh, examples of that over time. So all of those influences, I'd say, kind of came together uh, to inform my investing philosophy. And uh, you know, during business school, I would, did a stint on the sell side very briefly at Wedbush and uh, worked as an intern for a couple small hedge funds uh, while, I was, um, while I was in school. And uh, I started posting stock ideas on a website called SumZero. And uh, this was a second year of uh, business school. And I had started what would become Stone Oak, uh, the portfolio, while still in business school. And uh, I wound up getting in like the top, the first two ideas I happened to put on SumZero kind of blew up. They were, I got kind of lucky, I guess, and they blew up and I was in like the top five for the year. And uh, the head of SumZero at the time, Nick Kapoor, said, you know, uh, you know, you should really think about, you know, starting your own fund. You know, he was trying to get investors on his platform. You should think about starting your own fund. And he gave me some instruction about how to do it. Um, and uh, given the state of the uh, buy side, which was shrinking or in difficult times, I guess, starting in 2016, um, it almost seemed like the most secure thing to do was to start my own shop. And fortunately, I had the means to do it. And uh, so I did. And it's been uh, coming up on six years of uh, performance. And uh, here I am talking to uh, Robert Kraft on my, uh, on my first podcast. So <laughs> things, are, things are progressing. Well, look, I, you know, I, I, I have to ask too, you know, getting to the name Stone Oak, I mean, was Oak Stone taken? I mean, you know, was every other tree mixed in with some sort of rock uh, taken before we arrived at Stone Oak? How did we get to Stone Oak? You know, it's kind of, it's kind of a funny story. Um, <laughs> so I had heard, I think my, my dad once said to me that in German, the name Duberstein means Stone Oak. I think that wound up like not being true. I think he was wrong, but the name Stone Oak kind of always stuck with me. Um, it's a good name for an investing, um, and it actually, it actually is a good name for what I'm trying to do here. Because you have 
kind of the stone, which is a solid foundation and uh, downside protection, and then an oak, which is uh, you know growth opportunities to the sky going off in all different directions. So I actually kind of really liked that image, and uh, and I just kind of rolled with it. And then capital, you know, just it's capital. You know, yeah, you gotta, yeah. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta tack on a capital. You know, it just it makes you know, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta add that, of course. Yeah, but <laughs> <laughs> I, am a, I am, I am a financial firm and an asset manager, so of course, yeah. So, hey, so I wanted to follow up real quick. You know, you said, you know, you, you mentioned how your dad had a lot of influence on you uh, at the at the beginning and, and even just now. You know, Duberstein, you know, may or may not mean Stone Oak, but uh, what what were what was the biggest investing lesson? that you took from your pop when you were growing up and seeing what he was doing. And then, you know, as you grew up, you were like, wow, like, I didn't realize that I should think about it like that or that, you know, my dad's been telling me that my whole life. Oh, wow. That's a great question. Um, <laughs> well, one of them was like, whenever possible, don't sign personally on the loan, um, which is something our president, was it something our president, uh, president, our president is uh, currently having trouble with? Apparently, um, I don't know if there's any one lesson. It's just uh, or one that stands out. One that stands out. I think you know he's a very he's kind of he's a very instinctual person. Not that he doesn't. Do, he's very smart um, and sees things very objectively, but. The biggest lesson I think with him was that, you know, the crowd can be wrong. If you think something is, if you've looked at both sides of an issue, you know, always understand the other side of the issue. That was probably the biggest thing he taught me. Always understand the other side. Um, he went to, he was a, he's a lawyer by training initially. And I think um, always look at the other side of the argument and then don't be afraid to go with what you think is right, even if your partners or someone else is telling you that you're wrong. So what other better lesson could be in, you know, imparted to be a value investor than, uh, than that? I, I, don't, I don't think there is. I mean, those are, those yeah. are phenomenal lessons. <laughs> yeah, and that wasn't even invest, you know, on the subject of investing. That was just, really, life. just life lessons. So, um, I think that was probably, that was really invaluable. And it's something I try to, that's actually something I, uh, I hope differentiates me is, um, you know, Buffett says the biggest thing that differenti differentiates investors is temperament, not intellectual, like not, not IQ. And I think that's uh, trying to be even keeled and not care what the market's doing or what other, what consensus is. Uh, that's, that's the biggest lesson. I find like that, that sentiment is so much, it, it, it's pretty amazing when you're younger, if you have that um, mindset already to be able to stay yeah. even keeled when you're seeing market fluctuation, you know, volatility, whatever it is, you know, because I feel like as you get older, you're, you, you know, with that experience, that's more or less something that you can learn or, or gain, you would think, you know, you mm -hmm. hope, but you know, it's one of those things where like, if you can master that younger, I mean, I know I, I, I wasn't like that, like, I, but anybody that is like that when they're younger, I kudos. It goes against human nature. Yeah. You know, human nature, we want to go with the crowd because our caveman brain wants to be, you know, safe with 
with the rest of the group. So um, it takes a lot to overcome that, I'd say. Yeah. Yeah. So my, my last question on your background, I have to ask, you know, what instrument did you play uh, when you got your degree in music? Oh, I played jazz guitar. I, I played saxophone. I played saxophone. Dude. I played saxophone in middle school, and then nice. uh, I, like a lot of teenagers, uh, got into the guitar. And uh, then when I started studying music, I, you know, jazz is the hardest music to play, and it's also the most By interesting. Far. It's also the most By interesting. Far. It's not very accessible to many people, but uh, yeah. So the competitive person in me wanted to learn the hardest type of music and. Uh, try to get as good as it as I possibly could. You know, it's pretty um, interesting. I, I got to say of, of, of most of my interviews with, with folks who play an instrument, it not only has it been guitar, but then it's been uh, either blues or jazz. That's been their forte. Like uh, really? I had a, yeah, huh. I had Eric, Eric Barrowian on a couple weeks ago. Uh, he's big guitar player. You know, we were talking about jazz. I, I grew up a jazz drummer actually. Um, oh. And uh, Maj Swaydan, who I host another show with, he's a blues guitarist. I mean, it, it's it's pretty fascinating. I mean, it, and but it makes total sense, you know, because I mean, you can speak to it much more, <laughs> much better than me. Uh, but I know just as a drummer, I mean, it's it's all improvisation and listening, you know. Yeah. Um, no, maybe jazz is fascinating. Actually, jazz maybe not. Maybe not all improvisation because and and I and a few guitarists will probably kill me for saying that. Like, no, we would prefer if you just played the friggin' beat. But yeah. uh, you know, but but I digress. Well, it's structured and it's and it's semi-structured. You know, there's the chord progression. So and then you improvise within that. So yeah, what is correct and what is not? Uh, it's uh, you know, it's kind of fast. You know, it's impossible to master, which is why it's so fascinating. Which is why you go down the rabbit hole. Oh. Uh, pretty quickly. Um, I don't know. I guess hedge fund managers like to be hot shots and they like to do difficult stuff. So. <laughs> yeah, there you go. That's I mean, we, we have they yep. the hedge fund managers. They have a they have a name relating to uh, forestry and they play guitar. You know, it's a it's just a you're you're fit you're <laughs> for someone who likes to avoid the crowd. You're you're fitting the mold right now. Well, that's true. <laughs> uh, the hedge fund crowd, the hedge fund crowd's a unique kind of niche. Um, well, look, I mean, you could make the argument that value Buffett, like value investors are their own type of cult. So they're different from the vast majority of society, but they're still their own little community. Fair enough. Um, yep. Yeah. Which it, which is another subject we could talk about. Um, we'll, we'll get, yeah. we'll, we'll, de we'll definitely get there. Cause now, you know, I, I'm, I'm sure p people are patiently, you know, uh, fast forwarding and are going through our banter to finally get to your investing philosophy. So as you, as you, uh, as you alluded to with stone Oak, um, you know, stone being the foundation, uh, risk averse for what you're trying to do. And then Oak is for growth, you know, within that there's improvisation, there's that, uh, ability to add that qualitative element to what you guys are trying to do. So, um, Love to get that full picture. You know, what, what would you say is yours and Stone Oak's uh, investing philosophy? Great. Um, so in the early days, I struggled with, to outline my philosophy because I'm a, I'm a value investor, but how I describe my philosophy is you look for special companies and special situations. Ideally, you get a special company inside of a special situation. And if you 
we look to concentrate. We're long biased, not long only, but long biased. We look to concentrate in a handful of quote unquote special opportunities that are vastly underrated by the market. Now, this can be an early stage disruptive high growth stock. It can be a beaten down. That's probably more of a special company. Um, sort of these competitive, competitively advantaged compounder growth stocks. And special situations are some sort of unique circumstance that cause something, causes something to be very undervalued. So really all of our investments have a bit of both. We'll probably never invest in some in a company that's total, totally horrible, <laughs> even if it's cheap. And we'll probably, and we'll never invest in something that we don't think is going to obviously appreciate, um, uh, over the course of uh, over the course of time, so um, yeah, so concentrated, long biased. Um, I saw your interview with Matt. We we do dabble in options a bit um, to basically get paid for limit orders and or to you get a little bit of leverage that way. Um, but it's very, you know, I call it Stono Capital Opportunity Fund. So we're looking for a handful of basically exceptional opportunities. Um, and we think over, over the long term, uh, that will outperform the, uh, the market. All right. So then my obvious next question then would be, you know, what are some of your criteria uh, for, for some of these, you know, quote unquote, special opportunities? Oh, sure. Um, well, a special company will have, you know, I still go with the, even though I don't invest exactly like Warren Buffett, it's still the same principles. It's a um, company with a favorable long-term outlook that has a sustainable competitive advantage or an emerging competitive, the best is if it's an emerging competitive advantage that might not be seen by people just yet. Uh, run by honest and talented managers and then uh, bought at a reasonable price. And, uh, we can talk about different types of moats. Um, I'm sure, you know, your guests have talked about uh, all the different types of moats. Um, Pat Dorsey is another writer who I who I learned a lot from. Um, and again, the the strat, uh, strategy courses and just reading about the you know and just observing. And then you know, in this age of technological disruption, the the types of moats are. Um, well, network effects get um, are some of the you know most important um, switching costs. Um, you know, or in the case of something like uh, T-Mobile, uh, T-Mobile is a, a good idea, a good example because we think they have a um, a lead in five G spectrum, and so they have a first mover advantage in that. And T-Mobile is also integrating its um, and that came from its uh, transformative merger with Sprint. So that that merger gave it special capabilities as well as the special situation of merger synergies and all of that kind of, kind of stuff. And we have this transition to 5G. Um, even though I'm a, even though I would kind of a raised above raised myself a Buffett style investor, I'm, I'm look, I look a lot at the technology space which is where I think a lot of old school value investors kind of shy away from it because Buffett did. 
about the famous said famously said he didn't understand technology, but we actually dive headlong into uh, the tech space um, and try to apply. We try, I guess we try to apply Buffett Munger principles to uh, the technology space, which is not necessarily known for uh, value investing. <laughs> Most so, because because they're more growthy stories, you know, it's more about more the flywheel. Stories, yeah. yeah, and T-Mobile does not look cheap, um, quote unquote, but um, but we think it is. <laughs> just <laughs> give, just given what five G is going to enable and how it could become a broadband replacement, and uh, also you look at its and then there's a competitive advantage on the um, on T-Mobile's capital allocation too because they don't pay a dividend. So who are they competing against? Verizon and AT&T, both of whom are swimming in debt and pay out these huge dividends. And they, they got to keep paying you. So that's billions leaving these companies every year. So T-Mobile looks like they're going to leapfrog from kind of the third place telecom to the first place telecom as we're having this massive technological shift. So that's that's just an example of a macro special situation, a micro special situation all in one. And it's a fairly defensive, you know, we talked about Stone Oak, the down the risk reward. It's it's a low risk name, I think, T Mobile. Gotcha. While you also have this upside. So we look at really outsized risk reward, unique outside risk reward securities, and then we throw them all into the portfolio. Uh, and, it's, you know, and outsized risk reward, we'll invest in something maybe a little bit risky if the reward is great enough, but the allocation in the portfolio will be smaller. So T-Mobile is the example of something we can put a lot of capital in because you know, we can take a pretty big position because it's fairly defensive. It's fairly recession-proof. It's, um, it's the lowest cost, the low-cost wireless option out there. And soon it's going to have the best network with the lowest uh, monthly subscription price. So we think it can be disruptive against its basically two competitors. Got it. Um, and and I and I know this goes without saying, but I just have to make sure. I'm and we are long stock. Okay. There you go. <laughs> okay. Thank you. <laughs> so you know, so you just gave an, an example of, of of what you would consider a, a special opportunity that kind of fits that you know, special company within a special situation. So yep. what's what's some of your process when you're looking for these opportunities? You know, are you are you just combing through every bit of news you can possibly find or looking at trends? Like what 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 goes through your mind when you're trying to identify the T Mobiles out there for you? Um yeah, it's a great question. So it's a combination. I read voraciously. Um I'm interested in the sector. I try to read up on every single company in the sector. And, you know, I, again, I came at investing pretty late. So um, I really took Charlie Munger's advice when he's, you know, go to bed a little bit smarter than you woke up. And if you do that every day over the course of two, three, four, five years, you'll be pretty knowledgeable and be able to make investment decisions um, over the course of time. Uh, I also run some screens um, based on certain financial metrics, whether it's return on capital or something that's cheap. But um, 
and I, I'm, even though I'm a value investor, I'm really fascinated by sort of next generation technology trends. So if you look at 5G, I want to learn, you know, learning about what's going on with 5G. Um, T-Mobile, I've, I've just, from observation, known it to be just a good company, what's a really good company over the last five years. And then the merger with Sprint, uh, you know, I guess I had been following that company <coughs> from a distance for a few years. And then when the Sprint merger closed, then you like do a deep dive. You, uh, you, you can find a lot of information just in the 10K, truthfully. It's it's a dry read. I just don't. I think a lot of people just don't simply don't read the primary sources. Ten um, <coughs> Ks, you read conference calls going back. You know, read the last ten conference calls. Um, read every news item and commentary you can on the industry and the stock. And then by the end of that, if you take you know if you take notes, you'll and you can do some simple math. Um, you can do. You can probably make a pretty good guess as to uh, if it's a good investment or not. Um, a lot of us, you know, a lot of us just reading. <laughs> just a lot of people don't have the stamina and the stick-to-itiveness to do it. Um, I remember a, a, there was an interview with Todd Combs a while back, who's Warren Buffett's young lieutenant, who's running a lot of, who's running Geico right now. He says, "Yeah, a lot of my job is just reading." <laughs> This guy got hired by Buffett. So, um, what is that? The Woody Allen quote: "Like ninety percent of life is just showing up." Um, it, it's really as simple as that. Um, uh, yeah, uh, no, a lot. Again, I'm a value investor, but a lot of new IPOs. You know, I go read their S one because there's even if I don't, even if the stock's too expensive for me to invest in, I get. You know, they're usually on the cutting edge of something. Uh, usually there's an industry they're disrupting. Um, so for someone, you have to enjoy sort of reading about companies and industries, even if there's no immediate action you can take. And then that sort of all comes together over time. Um, so I, I, that's a roundabout answer. There's no, there's no one way, I guess. It's a lot of reading. Uh, some screening, and uh, of course, I have a network of other managers like Matt, and uh, we were an investing club here in LA called the 10K Club, which is a lot of uh, <clears throat> a lot of people who work at funds and have their own funds. So we all trade ideas and stuff. So very cool. Is, is there anything uh, I inevitably inevitably something falls through the transom that is actionable? Very cool. I mean, is there anything outside of your investable universe? Like, what are some things that you just stay away from completely? Oh, you're, you're a Buffett guy, so I'm assuming mining. Mining. <laughs> well, you know what? I, uh, I had an unsuccessful investment in a miner, which I normally okay. stay away pay, from. You paid, paid, paid a tuition. Hey, it, it, yeah, exactly. It's the price of uh, education. It wasn't a very big position. Um, although the miners have done pretty well in the last month or so. Uh, it's a big reflation trade that happened in November. That's a digression. Um, a lot of biotech is a little bit foreign to me. Uh, I would never, never say never. Um, I just haven't. Um, in terms of anticipating what drugs might get might get approved in 
what might not and what might like change cancer treatment forever. Um, uh, a lot of the drug companies I, I tend to be cautious about because it's not my field of expertise. Um, I have invested in a couple of diagnostic companies, which are a little bit more easy, you know, a little bit more easy to get my head around. Um, but the healthcare space is a little bit distant from me. So we're, we're very much into technology, consumer, some financials, um, telecom, media, uh, media, since it's sort of my background, although, and, um, yeah, so I'd say maybe biotech and drug development stocks are a little bit foreign to us. We'll even, we'll even, I even have a, an oil pipeline, truthfully, um, just because it got so cheap. <laughs> so there's really nothing that's out of bounds. There's definitely sectors that I am more comfortable with than others, but I'm, uh, I think I have the ability to get up to speed enough to make an investment decision on most sectors that are out there. Got it. All right. And then, and then, you know, last bit on, on your investing philosophy is really on your, on your strategy side, you know, you've, you find a potential investment that you want to get into. How do you size into it? You know, how, what's your portfolio allocation uh, strategy there? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I usually start small and cautiously, uh, and then build up and then I continue doing research. Um, so I'll actually probably inv invest a small allocation at maybe for once I first get interested, when I first start doing the research, um, <clears throat> I'll, uh, you know, I'll sell puts out of the money puts below, maybe take a small position, continue the research. Um, but if I get a fair amount of conviction and get excited about something, I'll scale up to a 10% position or more pretty quickly, depending on what type of what type of stock it is. So if it's like a large cap wide moat stock, I'll, I'll have no problem going to between 10, 10 and 20%. But usually a position starts around one, two, 3% allocation. Um, or if it's a risky position, even less. Um, and uh, Risk, risk is another topic that is kind of interesting because a lot of quants measure risk by beta or how large a company is. And if you think about risk as the, as the possibility of a permanent capital loss, you might think about it differently. So, um, so I owned a stock, uh, so I've owned, you know, and I still own it, full disclosure, uh, Micron technology, which is a very volatile stock. It's, um, they, make they make computer memory, which is sort of like a commodity in the tech world. Um, the price at which they sell DRAM or NAND flash can bounce around a lot. But they're one of only three producers of dynamic random access memory in the world with Samsung and SK Hynix. And they have the last boom basically fortified their balance sheet with a huge net cash position. So even though the stock bounces around violently based on where if people think the market's oversupplied or undersupplied, 
it's probably not going to be worth less than book value over the long term. So that's an that's an example where you can take advantage of volatility and uh, sell puts for big premiums. You can, you know, when it gets when it gets close to what you think it fundamentally is, uh, kind of a lower bound value. Uh, you can, you know, I have confidence to add to add to that position over time. Um, so, for a quant, you know, it might be a high risk stock, but if you look at it fundamentally, the risk of permanent capital loss is probably pretty low. Um, and that holding is done, you know, fantastic since the election. Um, we've had a number of positions that actually were, I'd say, artificially held down by the trade war. Um, and all those positions are kind of booming right now. Um, so a, a lot of, a lot of chip hardware stocks, um, that I think are competitively advantaged special companies. We're in a special situation of this ongoing trade war with China and, uh, they appear to have been unleashed by <laughs> the prospect of a Biden administration taking a more sort of practical tone, I would guess with, uh, respect to trade war. Uh, but I've gone off on the tangent, but, uh, Keep going. We're good. Like, again, I, I don't believe risk is we a core value is that we don't believe risk is how wildly a stock moves, which is what beta measures. Um, so that's another angle at which we try to uh, beat the market. You know, a, a a bit of inefficiency that we think we can take advantage of. Very good. So, I mean, what's, what would you say is like one thing when you want people out there who are listening to this to really know about you and Stone Oak as an investor, you know, what, what's something that you're like, all right, this is how we truly are completely different than some of the other funds that are out there. And just how we think about investing and just think about this whole, just everything. Mm. Oh, wow. That's great. Um, well, I certainly think my background is somewhat unique. My mentality is somewhat unique. We're not completely different from other value investors out there. I think we just, you know, again, the, the, the topic of being interdisciplinary. Um, I consider myself a, a Buffett, you know, Buffett principles, Charlie Munger principles. But then again, I'm going into next generation technology, next generation technologies, and that's a, really a area of interest. So. You take a lot of Buffett, Buffett investors will go, okay, well, we're going to go for some consumer packaged good brand. You know, we'll go for a bank, which has, you know, a solid moat. Um, we're not afraid to apply those principles to sort of high growth stocks or new technologies. So it's really a, a coming together of, of, um, I guess there's no one thing that differentiates it. It's really the combination of factors, the holistic picture that we look at. Um, we look at investment from maybe more angles than other people do. Some people might just say, oh, it's trading at this P. We think its earnings per share will be this next year. So that's what we do. It's like, no, we look at where is this industry going? How might it be disruptive? What's changing within the company? How might uh, sentiment, which might be out of favor now change to being in favor in the future. 
<clears throat> what's the doubt? And then we lay our strict evaluation discipline over all those qualitative concerns. So it's really in the, um, I would say the combination of factors. We, we really look at, I tend to look at an investment for maybe 20 different angles <laughs> where some kind of more straightforward, mathematically focused economic you know, accounting majors might look at it from two angles. And I would say that's probably really the difference. Very cool. So, I mean, Billy, we got to the point in the interview where it's, this is my favorite question to ask. You know, what would you say is an investing experience that impacted you the most in your career thus far? <clears throat> wow. This could be impact you in any way, shape, or form. A big win, a loss, a, a best lesson. Uh, uh, yeah. Um, well, I guess there have been two. One really positive and one really and one negative. Um, there we go. So All I'm, right. We like stories here. Bring them on. So I'll make uh, <clears throat> okay, so the bad, so the bad first. So at Stone Oak, I've made a tweak to our um, philosophy in the last couple of years, actually. Um, so the first two years of the portfolio, we had great performance. Next two years, we trailed a little bit. And the last two years, we outperformed. So but in those two years of underperformance, you know, we're in this kind of, I wouldn't say a new market paradigm, but it's a, it's not completely new, but it's new-ish. Um, I guess once I really got serious with Stone Oak and, you know, the tech sector was flying, I, uh, I kind of pivoted to what I would thought were value, quote unquote, value stocks. Um, and uh, a lot of those positions really stood still as the market flew by me in uh, 2017 into 20, 2016. The decisions were made in 2016, 2017, and it affected performance in 2017, 2018. And I, um, in response, I really dug into the tech sector more, and I was willing to pay up, pay up a little bit more for quality. And I set a higher or shall we say lower standard for value investments, whereas they had to be, let's say I was, you know, I thought it was a pretty good company trading at, you know, say a bank trading at like 12 PE and it's like pretty good. And I thought it was a good investment, you know, something that I thought was cheap basically without a catalyst um, or wasn't distressed enough, wasn't really um, out of favor enough. So you could say I've pivoted slightly more to quality and compounders, and I still look for beaten down value stocks in special situations, but they have to be they have to be really, really cheap, I guess you could say. A little bit more, not just cheap, but they have to be somewhat distressed, and there has to be some sort of catalyst that I can see that will cause them to re-rate. Um, and I've gotten to know more stocks and more companies right now where I can sort of filter out the mediocre ideas that I used to throw some dollars in. Um, you know, our performance wasn't terrible during those two years, but we, we lagged the market. So that pivot to setting a higher bar for value stock, for value investments, and to pivot more towards more quality compounders um, and the performances has kind of validated that. So I guess that was the, um, that was one lesson. Um, a lot of 
value investors, I think, is, are sort of stubborn and sort of scoffing at this market where growth stocks are kind of taking off. And, you know, in a world of zero interest rates and a lot of technological disruption, it's not, I'm not going to say a lot of the crazy growth stocks are warranted, but growth stocks are not necessarily crazy in that environment, I would say. Um, and then another is that, uh, you know, back in 2015, I, uh, I did a lot of research on a company called Ubiquity Networks. Full disclosure, we still own some. And I uh, put the idea up on an investing job board, and it was a heavily shorted stock at the time. And I had done a lot of research on it, and it was sort of early days of Stone Oak, and I was like, oh, I don't know, you know, I was getting a little nervous, but I, 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 at one point it was our biggest position. And uh, there are some people that have been in the industry longer than me on these job boards who were poo-pooing it, and they were uh, coming at me. They thought it was a fraud. And uh, it wound up not being a fraud. It wound up being probably my best investment of all time. So that lesson was just, if you actually put in the work and you have conviction, uh, you know, listen to the other side, but... Don't get shaken out when just because a stock is heavily shorted or there are smart guys going against you. Uh, so that would be a positive lesson. That's a that's a great story right there. In fact, that's one that I think a lot of uh, that that's one that should be echoed a little louder. Is like, hey, just listen. If you do the work and you have the conviction, it meets all your criteria, and and it, and the company keeps performing. You know, don't let others influence, you know, if they have, listen to the downside because that's important. You shouldn't just go blindly, yeah. of course, but, yeah. you know, it, at least have that conviction. And if you end up being wrong, you end up being wrong and you'll probably be able to figure out where you did go wrong. But, you know, if yeah. it keeps, if the, if the company keeps performing, I mean. Yeah. I mean, if you're an, in, I mean, if you're an, invest, if you're a professional investor, definitely, certainly. I mean, uh, it, the thing is, the thing about that is I had put in the work, um, you got to put in the work, but uh, don't be afraid to go against consensus. You know, some of your biggest wins can come can come that way, <laughs> truthfully. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's a positive lesson. Uh, as Peter Lynch said, there's always something wrong with every investment. There's always some reason not to invest. Are you kidding me? In microcap world, like uh, that's there's it's like oh every it's like every company like it's more it's more than a few hair. You know, it's got back hair. It's got a it's got ear hair. You know, sometimes you know it's got yeah. all that all that weird stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but very cool. It's all right, man. Fun, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's the fun part is trying to figure out. Well, like, all right, what you know, what kind of hair does this one have? You know, I mean. It's, it's what, what it's all about. So Billy, with that, you know, what, what advice then would you have for, you know, let's say new investors that are looking at the stock market today? Ooh, today. Yeah. <laughs> Today's an interesting market. Um, new investors. I would say, uh, well, Really enjoy the work. If you don't enjoy the work, you're probably better off having someone else manage your index funds or having someone else manage your money. Um, there's a lot of people, I think, getting rich today <laughs> off of 
investments they might not know so much about since the market is uh, has been kind of peculiar this year. Um, uh, you have to love doing the research and uh, know the business that you know the business behind what you own. Uh, they're not just tickers that are moving all, you know, it's not, it's not sports. Um, they're not just tickers that are moving higher or lower every day. There's an actual business behind that. And uh, really, you have to under, really like to understand the business and the industry and where it's going. So if you enjoy that and you do a little bit of work every day, you'll, you'll be good to go. And you know, be humble and learn from your mistakes. You'll be, you'll be fine. That's a great place to end it. So, Billy, with that, where can my audience go and find everything they need to know to, uh, to follow you and Stono Capital? Great. Yeah, my uh, my website is uh, stoneoakcapitalllc.com. So there's going to be three L's in a row in that title. It's uh, maybe not the best URL, but uh, yeah, Stone Oak Capital LLC. Um, and there's a there's a company up in Canada called Stone Oak also, so don't get com confused with that. Uh, you can find me, Billy Duberstein. I'm on LinkedIn and uh, and on Twitter. And uh, uh, what's your I, handle? What's your handle on Twitter? Uh, Bdubs82. Bdubs82. All right, there we go. That's you know that's that's his jazz guitar uh, nickname as well. It's Bdubs. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> good stuff. Um, but yeah, if you want to uh, get uh, investing letters, um, put your email into stoneoakcapitalllc.com or you're one of my contacts on LinkedIn. I post it to my contact. I post letters to my contacts on LinkedIn. Um, and uh, yeah, don't be shy. Very cool. All right, well, Billy, thank you so much for joining me today. This is a lot of fun. Be safe, good luck. And uh, hey man, let's, uh, you know, virtual high five and uh, I know I'm not going to be seeing you in the streets of LA for, for a bit around a lockdown, but uh, <laughs> I'm sure at some point soon. A few more months. A few more months. That was yeah. Right. I'm, almost, we're almost there. We're almost there. All right, buddy. Take care. All right, this is a lot of fun. Thanks, Robert. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Podcast.